When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Exponentially, it's more impactful when a viewer sees a portrayal again and again and again over a period of time, more than just once. So all of a sudden, people who have never been exposed to someone who's an undocumented person, you know, undocumented Filipino and gay, right? All of a sudden, they got to know this guy as just this guy. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. And that voice we just heard before belongs to Jose Antonio Vargas. June, who is Jose and why did you want to talk to him for this episode? So Jose is at heart a journalist. He's probably still best known for an article that was published in the New York Times magazine 10 years ago. And in the article, he came out as an undocumented immigrant. He was sent over from the Philippines when he was 12 And he only found out that he didn't have the required paperwork when he was 16 and he went to get a driver's license. Since that New York Times magazine piece was published, he really hasn't been able to work at a newspaper or magazine. But he founded an organization called Define American, which tells immigrant stories. And a big part of Define American's work involves consulting with people who are making movies and TV shows, with storylines around immigration and citizenship, and Define American helps them get it right. And I'm just endlessly curious about that kind of consultancy. I mean, last week you did a great interview with intimacy coordinator Marcus Watson, and in the past I've written stories about people who, for example, help shows get representations of disability right, and I just find that work fascinating. Absolutely. And, you know, many people will hear this episode on or around July 4th. So I'm really excited that we're featuring a conversation that is in part about what it means to be American. Me too. I think as an immigrant here, like many immigrants, I have an easier time confessing my patriotism than some native born citizens do. But I love that America has a holiday that's focused on the nation's founding and its history And, of course, the concept of immigration and citizenship is at the very center of all that. Yes, and I believe we have a little something extra for our Slate Plus subscribers. What is it? We certainly do. I asked Jose to tell me about his favorite books about the topic of citizenship, broadly defined, and he surprised me with some of his picks. Oh, interesting. That sounds great. And you absolutely do not want to miss that. And why would you? 
When it's so easy to subscribe to Slate Plus, you'll get exclusive members-only content, zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new podcast, Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. You get to feel very virtuous, and it's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. Okay. Let's hear June's conversation with Jose Antonio Vargas. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Jose Antonio Vargas. Um, I think when people ask me that, the first thing I say is I'm a journalist. I think that's been like an identity that I have worn and claimed since I was, what, 16, 17? Mm -hmm. So it's like before I knew that I was gay and I understood what that meant before I realized what being undocumented meant or what being Filipino meant or being Asian, whatever all those things are, before all of that, I think I knew right away that I was a journalist. We'll talk about some other parts of your identity, but I think the outside world knows you mostly as a journalist. Um, certainly other journalists do. And in large part, even though you won a Pulitzer Prize when you were at the Washington Post. You know, you have a lot of journalism credentials, but I think the thing that you're most known for is one essay that you wrote for the New York Times Magazine in 2011 that was titled My Life as an Undocumented Immigrant, where you effectively came out as someone who isn't legally allowed to work in the U.S. Now, I know you've done a lot since, you know, in the intervening 10 years, but I still have to ask about that piece. How did it come about in the first place? You know, I just thought it was incredible that I had a job or I had an identity where I could ask people questions. Mm -hmm. 
it became such a form of liberation because I didn't want to be asked questions. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it was much better to ask people questions than being asked questions myself. So it was like a, in a way, it was a defense mechanism early on because once I realized that I wasn't even supposed to be here, right? I got mm-hmm. here, was born in the Philippines, got here when I was 12, found out when I was 16, I was here illegally. So since I didn't want to be asked, well, wait a second, like, how did you get here? Where are your parents? Why do yeah. you talk like that? Why do you look like that? You know, all of those things. I was like, wait, 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 wait. I'm the one that asked the questions here. Right. And you had permission, not only permission, but it was your job to ask questions. Protected by the First Amendment. Now, mind right. you, I kept asking myself, wait, but I'm here illegally. Am I covered by the First Amendment? Like, so all <laughs> these questions, why, you know, so... That's why being a journalist w- w- has been such a um, a defining corner. I mean, it has informed the way I make films. <laughs> like, you know, I've made documentaries. I'm now I'm actually um, moving into the scripted world from both TV and film. But mm-hmm. I think my journalistic qualities of asking questions, like, what don't I know? Who am I not mm-hmm. hearing from? What haven't I considered? Facts can't exist without context. I mean, all of these things for me are fundamental. They're they're like the irrigation system, right? So <laughs> to answer your question, how it came about was because I didn't understand my own irrigation system. <laughs> like I didn't. I was just like, you know, found that I was undocumented when I was 16, became a journalist. Literally, when my Mrs. Dewar, my English teacher, said he asked too many annoying questions, you should consider <laughs> journalism. And then I just started running. Right. And it wasn't really until I wrote that essay and it wasn't until Carlos Losada, a wonderful journalist named Carlos Losada, who at the time was an editor for the Outlook section, which is like the opinion section of The Washington Post, who is now a book critic. Actually, he won the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago. Tremendous, tremendous journalist. So I told The Post and mind you, originally, actually, I called David Remnick. Because I oh. had just finished a profile of Mark Zuckerberg. I was 29. I remember the time it was published that same week was my first documentary that I was co-producing based on an art- articles that I wrote. It was premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival. And I was so depressed. I was mm. living like on 14th Street in Union Square. And I, I remember for a week I couldn't get out of bed. I was just like, wow. you know what I mean? So what's the point? Success. Yeah. I had the apartment, I had career, I had a pride, all those things. Mm. So then that's when I'm like, okay, so how do I deal with the fact that I have a broken irrigation system? Like, I don't know how this happened to me. So then that, that's how the, the journey of what do I do now? And then asking myself, do I leave? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when I actually started exploring options, um, the suggestion was you have to leave the country and then try and then accept the 10 year bar, right? Mm-hmm. Part of the immigration law. Then try to come back, but there's no guarantee. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I thought that was an option. I, could, I, I considered that for about a couple of weeks and then decided to come out. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I emailed David Remnick, got him on the phone, and I could instantly tell that he had no idea what I was talking about. I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm here illegally. I don't know exactly what I said, but basically I just outed myself to him as undocumented. And on the end of the line, you know, when you're pitching an editor 
Yes, I do. <laughs> and you can tell right away. Crickets. Yeah, yeah, Crickets. yeah. No go, yeah. Jose. No yeah. go. And he just wasn't interested and he didn't get it. Um, mm. And so then I contacted Catherine Weymouth, who then was the publisher at the Washington Post. She totally got it. Then she connected me to Marcus Broccoli, who was then the Washington Post top editor. Mm-hmm. And Marcus, I could tell right away, you know, again, I'm a journalist who lied about who I am. Mm-hmm. So he mm-hmm. was not trusting what I was coming from. I remember he actually said to me, why don't we have another reporter report your life? Yeah. yeah. And you come yeah. out that way. And I'm looking at him like, no, this is my yeah. story to tell. I'm going to tell this story. Then that's where Carlos Lozada came in. And he really uncomfortably asked me all these journalistic questions that I had never answered before. And if it wasn't for him playing that role of the editor, right, I I mean, that essay would not have had the kind of, it it wouldn't have the kind of framing that it did. I mean, when I read it now, I reread it recently for something and it, to me, it reads more like a confessional than anything else. Mm -hmm. I was just confessing. But it didn't come out in the Washington Post. All that work happened at the Washington Post. So what happened there? Um, <laughs> Marcus Broccoli basically said, I don't know what I don't know. And he killed the story. And Carlos mm-hmm. Lozada completely disagreed with that opinion. I had, And then I remember my next uh, phone call was Peter Baker. I was the New York Times, who was my colleague at the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. And he writes for the New York Times Magazine. And so he helped place that. I think the New York Times Magazine had like three days Oh, my goodness. To basically rip apart their issue and put it in. So it has that distinction of being an article and an essay fact-checked and edited at the Washington Post that got published in the New York Times. Wow, that's an amazing story. But then it kind of blew up your journalism career, right? Okay, so this is probably, I probably should not have done this, but, you know, this past week was the 10th year anniversary of that. Mm. I went down this rabbit hole of... You know, it happened so fast and then all of a sudden I wasn't just me anymore. I was like this other person in a lot of people's views and journalists. Yeah. I mean, yeah. certainly in journalists, right? Among yeah. journalists. Yeah. And um, I was rereading some of the essays that like, you know, Jack Schaefer wrote. <laughs> and there's actually an article by the ombudsman when the Washington Post used to have an ombudsman. I yeah. think the headline was, why did the Post deport Jose Antonio Vargas's story? And... I mean, it was really painful reading them. But yeah, then I'm thinking, yeah. my God, this was 10 years ago. Thank God I didn't let myself, because I mean, I could have spent just a lot of time just trying to answer all these journalists, but yeah. I had a bigger, you know, I mean, the goal was bigger, which is starting yeah. to find American, right? Like yeah. my goal from so, the beginning was I have one story, you know, but there's this narrative about who we are, where we come from, what happened, right? And mm-hmm. narrative, as you know, is a system of stories, right? So we need more than one story. So mm-hmm. how do we do that? So I became really myopically focused on Define American and trying to tell people that, hey, you know, journalists, look, I basically just told this. I, I put a lot of booby traps in the article. There are more stories and there are more people mm-hmm. and this is what's happened. So def- what is Define American? 
So our role at Divine American is how do we really humanize this most partisan and political of issues? Mm. How do we humanize the immigrant narrative one story at a time? That's like the tagline, right? Yeah. So how yeah. do we humanize the immigrant narrative, the, like this, this system of what people think we are, one story at a time? And we do that through our work in like Hollywood, right? We work with a lot of TV shows and films, like over 100 films and TV in the past decade now that we've consulted on. So, well, let's talk about, because I know um, that, because you got some coverage, Define American got some coverage for your involvement in the show Superstore, where there was a character called Mateo who was, huh, gay, Filipino, undocumented. That never happens, right? <laughs> so, uh, but, and and it, in, I think it was in season four, he was arrested by ICE, right? So how did you get involved? What did you do? Like, what does it mean to sort of say, okay, we got involved in that? What happened? You know, we actually got involved in that in like 2016. Um, so we worked on that show for like four seasons and was involved with Mateo's storyline specifically for four seasons. And that happened because we heard of the show and we heard that they were partly inspired to make this character undocumented by reading my story. And so we just reached out and said, hey, we're here. We'd love to be of help. Right. And what was great about that experience for us was working with writers. I mean, writers want to be writers. They don't want to be told what to write. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I know this because I'm a writer. I know that the last thing I want is somebody telling me. Right. So <laughs> no, do it this way. Do it this way. Our job was to just, you know, make sure that they're aware of all the possibilities. Right. To Because, I mean, to me, especially now, I don't know about you, but I feel like at a time like this, Storytelling is one of those places where complexity and nuance can still exist, mm. right? Like Matteo as a as someone who's a romantic, you know, person. Matteo yeah. is someone who dates. Matteo is someone who's not a perfect guy. You know what I mean? He mm. could be kind of an ass, and that's mm. okay, right? Yeah. Like he doesn't have to be some good immigrant, you know, trope, right? Yeah. And so we yeah. worked in that show, you know. Um, 23 episodes aired in the in that storyline over the past three years. And this is really important for us to know because a lot of what we do at Define American is really research-driven, right? And we know that research suggests that um, exponentially it's more impactful when a viewer sees a portrayal again and again and again over a period of time, more than mm -hmm. just once. So all yeah. of a sudden, people who have never been exposed to someone who's an undocumented person, you know, undocumented Filipino and gay, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, yeah. they got to know this guy yeah. as just this guy, Right. Yeah. So there was a relationship. They were being informed without being pedantic about it yeah. or without yeah. being t telling you, here's the headline. Here's what's happening. So we work consistently with the writer's room to improve, you know, just accuracy around kind of the, the points where immigration was an issue, like when he got arrested, for example. I watched Superstore for a while. I actually stopped watching at some point. I, you know, these days you can always figure you can catch up. Right. So it's like nothing's ever gone. But my understanding is that even though he was arrested by ICE, he ended up staying in America, right? Which isn't always, I mean, we have evidence that some people do stay, but uh, like, so how did you, you're talking about accuracy without being didactic. Can you just share for people who haven't seen the show, how did Mateo's storyline kind of play out after he was arrested? Well, I mean, for us, it was actually, I remember we actually sent somebody in the writer's room who from our network, right, at Divine American, who's undocumented and who shared a story about being mugged in Boyle Heights, 
right? And Which is a Latino area of, of Latino Los Angeles. Right? And his friends congratulating him that because he was mug, he would be eligible for a U visa. Oh, my. Right. Because that, that a U visa is when you cooperate with the authorities. You, yes, that and, you know, something violent. And ha- yeah. Mm. So yeah. this yeah. is like a really funny and tragic storyline that educated viewers about how difficult it is for someone to, who's undocumented to obtain a yeah. visa, right? Yeah. So those yeah. are the kind of details yeah. that immigration yeah. law, as you know, June, is so complex and yes. so one size does not fit all. So let's just dig a little deeper. Just for example, when you say we work with uh, the writer's room at Superstore to work on this storyline. Can you say specifically what happens? How exactly, like, do you literally go into a room? Who goes into that room? What's the advising process? Well, first of all, I, and again, this is where I think my background as a, as a writer has been useful in this way. Like, you know, writers are sensitive people, right? And I think I mentioned that the last thing writers want to be told is how to, how to write and what to write. So a lot of it for us is actually just making sure that they know that we are not necessarily a safe space, but we're there to help them. We're there to serve their artistic process. We're not there to judge them. We're not here. Although there's been some times where we're like, hey, this is just <laughs> outright. But that happens when you have mutual respect and mutual trust, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of what happens is, Actually, we do go physically. Well, before the pandemic, when we started this program, we do go to writers' rooms. And what happens is we actually bring undocumented immigrants or just immigrants of whatever status in general or connect them with people who are, who then tell their stories that end up in many ways serving as either inspiration, right, where they take little tidbits, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, as writers, they're the ones that create the character and create the arcs. Like, we don't do Mm -hmm. that. But Mm -hmm. they go to us to say, hey, could this have happened? Right? Mm-hmm. Could this could this have been possible? What what was the process if they if they wanted to hire a coyote, for example? How much would a coyote be? Like if they mm-hmm. wanted to adjust their status through marriage, like how does that happen? How long does that take? Right? I think of the relationship as really special in that way because people feel the the rooms themselves and the showrunners, right, who are basically in charge of these shows, they see us as part of their process. Mm-hmm. And again, as somebody who who is a process person, I just find that really thrilling, to be honest with yeah. you, to be a part of that, to be a part of that space. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Jose Antonio Vargas after this. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. Whether it's a question about getting down to work or what you can do to improve communication with your collaborators, really anything at all, send us your questions to working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a thing. Now let's get back to the rest of June's conversation with Jose Antonio Vargas. So I know there's a show called, I believe, Roswell, New Mexico, which is kind of about aliens. So there's a little twist there. Um, But there was a storyline that you all worked on that was about someone 
struggling, as I understand it, I confess I have not seen it, struggling to uh, to change their status. So what were the issues that, that you all were working on with that show? Well, I mean, it, it's just a matter of making sure that people understand that there are different ways that people can get status, right? I mean, this is, I mean, for me, if I were to name, for example, one of the chief misunderstandings is that undocumented people and documented people, you can't separate them because they're usually in the same family. So yeah, you yeah. would have the youngest kids as U.S. born citizens, right? Mm -hmm. And then the older kids as, you know, eligible for DACA and then the parents who are undocumented. So, for example, for Roswell, we worked on the storyline, you know, our tour, like the undocumented dad, right? The journey of him being undocumented and the road to citizenship through like mm -hmm. one season and figuring out, mm -hmm. okay, what are the struggles that he would have as mm -hmm. he goes through this process? And it's mm -hmm. not just the legality process. I mean, for me, experience watching my friends do this is <sighs> the guilt that sometimes happens yeah. within families, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I remember when DACA first happened, I had some friends who didn't want to apply for it because they yeah. felt that if they did, they were leaving their family behind. Mm. Because yeah. it was like, you know, someone said to me, it just seems so random because yeah. I was, yeah. I, because I'm 25, like, but my sister yeah. is only two years. Yeah. And then yeah. I reminded my friend, you know, I'm four months uh, past the, um, the eligibility Line. Yeah. It is yeah. random, but what are you yeah. going to do? You yeah. take what you can get. Yeah. Go run with it. Yeah. So for Roswell, yeah. it was actually just how do we present in an accurate and a human way this journey that for many people is really complex. I know there's this, uh, also a case where you worked on where there was a, a Haitian storyline because Haitians, you know, again, which I don't think the number of people who understand something like TPS or like status changing, not because of individuals, but were people are from and and like for in many countries you're protected for a while and then if the protection is lifted <laughs> yeah. yeah like so sorry what changed a law but i'm here uh so uh what can you say a bit more about that particular storyline i mean i was really happy that we were working on that because part of our goal at define american is really to make sure that we work with immigrants of all backgrounds mm -hmm. i mean again mm -hmm. i actually think we owe the Latina and Latino community an apology for having made this such an issue that, only, that when people think about it, they people automatically think it's them. Yeah, so yeah. the black immigrant population in this country has increased fivefold since 1980, mm. right? And yet black immigrants and undocumented black immigrants are rarely included in any conversations around immigration or immigration reform. So that's why for us, it's really important that when we end up working on shows that we try to diversify and we help with the diversification of how people think of the issue. So working on that show with, uh, with an undocumented Haitian character for us was, again, part of our effort to really make sure that we're reflecting the entire doc, you know, immigrant population. Yeah. What show was that? A Billion Little Things. Ah, okay. Thank you. Um, you know, I'm really aware that you're doing all this work about immigration, around citizenship, immigration, what it means to be an American, what it means to really own your citizenship. And you still don't have citizenship. And I wonder, like, what toll that has on you. And I believe that's correct, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, how, because you're being asked, well, no, you're asking yourself to do all this creative work. And it's on a topic that has got to be the most triggering, hardest topic there is, right? 
I think it's because I find I I feel less lonely. Wow. <laughs> right? Like it actually for me instead of having this instead of being triggered, instead of being traumatized, I find a sense of comfort knowing that whatever it is that I'm going through, other people is is going through it, have gone through mm. it and are mm. trying to surpass it. Yeah, and not saying anything that's you're always in your own head, right? If you I mean, June is um Immigrant Heritage Month and Pride Month, right? And right. whenever this month happens, now mind you, I'm an immigrant and I'm gay every day, but sure, I'll take June. <laughs> um the thing that I remind myself is how really lonely and paralyzing being in the closet, any closet was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And you like tell these little lies that don't even like make any sense. And you realize Mm -hmm. that you're not lying to other people. You're actually lying to yourself. That for me was the hardest thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. now the fact that we can do this work and we can help liberate people's stories from outside of themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that's again, you know, one story isn't enough. Yeah. Yeah. So you're writing a book right now, as I understand it. I know you've, you've already published books. I'm not suggesting it's your first book, but you're writing a book now. What is it about and how do you find that, you know, having done, done a lot of advising, like what's it like to get back to, okay, I'm sitting down and I'm typing and I'm... In some ways, working on this project, is like a really nice, after 10 years, 10 years marking Divine American where people are like... Wait, are you now? Because now what happens is, oh, the activist advocate, Jose Antonio. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait, like, did I ever say, okay, that's great that you think that, but I don't think of myself as neither an activist nor an advocate. And I'm not saying that to just, I just don't identify as such. I am a Mm -hmm. journalist. I'm a journalist. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a producer. That's what I do. Right. Mm -hmm. So I feel like working on this book is like going to like my it 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 has felt even though it's a lot of work because it's a lot of I am like deep thank God I have researchers helping me because we're going through like two three books a week um, oh right now the working title is white is not a country and it's all about how we are a country right now where there are forty five million immigrants mostly from Latin America and Asia right. Those 45 million immigrants in the next 50 years, according to Pew, will constitute 88% of the total population growth, right? The black population in this country has not changed percentage-wise since I got to this country in the 1990s. It's 13%. The Latino population has more than doubled. The Asian population has doubled. The white population has decreased. And yet, we talk about race in America in this kind of black or white binary. So mm. where do Asian people and Latinas and Latino and colorism and anti-blackness, and all, where does that fit in all? Of, mm-hmm. So that's what my book is about. And oh. <laughs> it's a really ambitious, it's probably the most ambitious journalistic project I've undertaken. But it's exciting because it's, I feel like I'm going back to my days in the Washington Post in the style section yeah. where I got to write 5,000 word profiles and yarns. But now that's a topic, it seems to me, that's very, very research intensive. You mentioned you've got researchers working with you. Like it's, there's always that challenge of like, this is something that you're connected with. You're a person of color who is not black, uh, who is an immigrant, who is not Latino. Like, like you're kind of, you're the person you're talking about. How do you keep like, the, you know, the first person and then all this research? Has that been a challenge or is that just something that you can just do? 
now that I've gone through it, I think the hardest story we tell is about ourselves. That is the hardest stories mm. we tell. And in some ways, my journalistic training actually has helped me through this process because this constant self-reflection of asking myself uncomfortable questions before other people get to them. Jose Antonio Vargas, this was really great. Thank you so much for your time and for your insights. Thank you so much for having me. June, that was such a great interview. I loved hearing about the process behind Jose's now legendary article, My Life as an Undocumented Immigrant. It's a career-defining, incredibly powerful piece that I'm pretty sure had a real impact on how a lot of people view the issue of immigration, and it almost never came out. I know. As he said, it's pretty darn unusual for a story to be edited at the Washington Post and published in the New York Times. I mean, he took a huge risk in going public with the fact that he was basically unemployable. But I agree. I think that piece had a huge impact, especially in the world of journalism. I mean, if there is such a thing as a typical journalist, Jose is not it. He's a working class immigrant, gay Filipino, but he's also hugely successful journalist. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. And I think that that story really opened a lot of people's eyes. It was a real we are everywhere moment. Yeah, you know, I was fascinated to hear that Jose thought of himself as a journalist way before any other understanding of his identity. You know, there are people who really do have a kind of vocation that carries them through life. But as he pointed out, it also can mean that you wind up pursuing it for a long time before you really figure out why or what's important about it to you or what you were really meant to do. Yeah, and it it really fits for him. I mean, clearly, he's a very curious guy. He really likes digging into situations and talking to people and figuring out what makes them tick. That's part of his psychological DNA. But I was really persuaded by his kind of explanation to himself that he was drawn to journalism and specifically to reporting because he wanted to ask questions rather than have to answer them. (laughs) Yeah, and yet... His main day job is not now, strictly speaking, as a journalist, even though he still thinks of himself as one. You know, I kind of feel like this sometimes myself because I definitely am more of a prose writer now than I am a theater director. Yet I still think of myself as a theater director and I talk about myself like one. And and so I have to ask. You've worn a lot of hats in your professional career. Uh, We've heard about some of them right here (laughs) on Working. Is there one hat that you feel is uh, more important to your identity than the others? Is it important uh, to have a core identity when it comes to your work? Yeah, there is. Like, I do think of myself as a writer, and if I do want people to think of me that way. Um, You know, that's important to me. But I have to admit that when it comes to what I think I'm like especially good at, it's as a copy editor. Like I feel like, all modesty aside, I'm like a top 5% copy editor. (laughs) And, you know, there are a lot of outstanding writers in the English language, so I can't claim to be in the top 5% of that group. But listeners, please 
read everything I write, okay? <laughs> Jose's media advocacy organization, Define American, often works with television shows to help shape their representations of immigrants for the better. And I actually used to work for an organization that did some similar work around African-American men and boys. And, you know, it can be quite a struggle to convince people that you can both be self-conscious about the representational politics of your artistic choices mm. and still make good art at the same time. Mm. But but even divorced from politics, I felt like there were some real lessons in his approach there for collaboration in general, no matter what the nature of the project is. Yeah, for sure. And also, that sounds like an amazing project that you worked on before. Um, as he said... Being a writer himself, he understands that there's going to be a resistance to, like, being told what to write. But instead of focusing on that, which, you know, would be a pretty poor way to kind of offer that kind of advice anyway, it's surely productive for directors or showrunners or whoever to think how much better it would be if their writers had conversations with people who had lived the kinds of stories they're writing. Like, there's a tendency to assume, I guess, I should admit that I kind of assume that, that like, if one entity is advising a lot of shows, it might lead to homogeneity of storytelling. But actually, I think when it's done well, the opposite will happen. Mm -hmm. Because instead of getting things wrong, which is definitely something you want to avoid, or telling one cliched story, you're being exposed to many more kinds of experience many more truths, just many more lives. And that's got to be good for any kind of creativity. Yeah, absolutely. And and also, we should say that those kinds of organizations exist well beyond the representational politics sphere. There's a lot of, uh, for example, disease advocacy groups mm -hmm. that work on getting storylines into medical dramas and then working with those shows to make sure they're accurate. So it really isn't just limited to portraits of, of people of color or, or things like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one thing that Jose said that really struck me is one story isn't enough. You know, it's about the cumulative yeah. power and weight of stories and how they affect often our subconscious. And so I got to ask, you're a great <laughs> lover of television. We've been talking quite a bit about TV lately on this show. What is on your representational wish list for television? What don't we see often enough? What's often mishandled, do you think? Well, yeah, that point really stuck with me too. And I think he's absolutely right. You know, when I think of something that's really important to me, like LGBTQ representation, it was shows like Glee where characters stuck around and storylines developed over the course of many years that really had an effect on how viewers thought about queer people. Like, that show was a dumpster fire. It was terrible <laughs> in many ways. But I'll always believe that it was incredibly influential in that regard, and actually also in representations of disability. Like, again, Ryan Murphy can do some terrible things in his shows, but um, he has had some truly great... Uh, characters with disabilities. He seems to have had several characters with Down syndrome, for example. And that feels really powerful because they're there over and over and over again. They're in people's lives, which is how real life is. Uh, other than that, um, I think my biggest beef has actually been around immigration and citizenship. I have screamed at my television, that's not how it works, so many times. So I'm really glad that Define America and surely other organizations are helping shows to come up with credible and varied stories. What about you? What do you want to see more of? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because, of course, you always notice the ones that get your own life experience wrong. But it feels yeah. difficult to complain about representations of heterosexual middle-aged white men <laughs> on television. It just feels a little weird, right? But I do find that there is, you know, there are, there's all the normal ways in which TV dads are written just drive me insane. I mean, yeah. they're they're driven by all sorts of weird stereotypes and it just, it really uh, gets me enraged. It's like, no, I actually take care of my child and co-parent them. And I am not myself a child who needs to be bossed around by my wife or, you know, like we, we actually work very hard on our, on splitting our domestic labor and, you know, you know, stuff like that. So, so the one about dads really gets to me. Um, but I, I would also say that, um, Particularly, uh, I'm starting to see more of this, which is good, but I think particularly intersectional experiences, you know, particularly queer people of color or trans people of color or um, autistic people who are queer, you know, you know, those intersections are starting to happen more and more and is very exciting. I do think uh, and this is somewhere that a lot of kids shows are doing better than adult shows, but um, starting to think about body shape and particularly mm-hmm. how fatness is depicted. I think the way our media portrays all that stuff has given all of us collectively brain poisoning. Um, and it is my my fervent hope that we start seeing some real progress on that soon. Yeah, that's a really good one, I hope. And, you know, and we've seen a couple of shows, but yeah, uh, we need more on that for sure. Well, we hope you have enjoyed this show. And if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you will never miss an episode. And yes, it is time once again for the Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new show, Big Mood, Little Mood. But I also hope you'll do it to support what we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to our guest this week, Jose Antonio Vargas, and to our wonderful producer, Cameron Drews. Make sure to tune in next week for Isaac's conversation with Grammy-nominated singer and songwriter Yola. Until then, get back to work.